With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marie. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast in Holland, Michigan. I'm Ryan Marine, John DeGeese in Phoenix, fresh off of a weekend in Japan, covering the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli Round at Suzuka. How are you doing, John? A little jet-lagged, but other than that, uh, doing fine. I suppose that's to be expected, but a lot to come out of that weekend, and we'll discuss that race on this show here in a little while. Also, we've got IMSA in action at VIR over the weekend to recap the second and final GT-only race on the schedule here in 2019. So we'll be discussing those two topics in segment one. We've got news to get to after that. Kelvin Vanderlinde will join us for a brief interview following the uh, successful run at Suzuka a little bit later in the show, and we'll wrap things up by looking ahead to a busy weekend of racing with the WEC and ELMS, both racing at Silverstone, plus SRO Motorsports America racing at Watkins Glen, plus a listener question as well. But let's begin, John, with Suzuka, the experience uh, that you have there. First of all, I know it's a track that, that you enjoy. It's a country you enjoy going to. Overall, your impressions of this year's uh, IG GTC rounded Suzuka. Well, it was another hard-fought race. It was definitely a little different than last year in cooler conditions. Um, still very warm, you know, considerably, but it wasn't as much of a test on machine and man as it was last year. But this year, what we saw was um, Audi break through with their first win internationally in Japan. It was a uh, pretty. Uh, surprising actually post-race when when Chris Franke, the head of uh, Audi Sport Customer Racing, told me that this was the first time an Audi had won a major international race. You know, believe it or not, they'd never won in Fuji for any of the WEC races or or any other race before then, Asian Le Mans. Um, there had been races the R8 had run there, the LMP1, LMP900 car from the 2000s. So um, incredible stuff from Kelvin Vanderlinde, Fred Verwiesch, and Dries Van Thor um, picking up the win. It was a, a real dominant performance by that trio. Um, even even quicker, you know, sort of set themselves out in front of the other uh, uh, Audi in, in much of the race as well. Um, BMW was surprising early on, um, grabbing pole um, with uh, Augusto Farfis. Um, they were 1-2 they were for, for the opening hour. Ultimately, the BMW dropped back later in the race. So it wasn't as um, clear-cut there from, from that standpoint, but um, yeah, I, I think from hour three onwards, it was pretty much in, it was Audi's race to lose in, in, the, in terms of the number 25 WRT entry. And it was a, a big win for sure in as far as uh, the Drivers' Championship in Intercontinental GT Challenge is concerned. Audi has been so successful as a manufacturer in the past. We know, leaving Suzuka, that they've been eliminated now from the, the Manufacturers' Championship battle headed to Kyle but still they have a driver right there in, in the midst of the championship battle as far as the drivers are concerned. Yeah, Fred Verwish, um, one of the winners on Sunday, is only six points out of the lead um, provisionally heading into Kyle Ami. There's actually four or five different drivers that 
um, have a really serious uh, chance of the title. Actually, a trio of drivers from Porsche that finished third on Sunday. A little bit of strategy helped put that um, absolute racing Porsche on the podium. And some bad luck from the other um, absolute racing entered car, the, the, their Audi, the number 125. They had a refueling issue on their final stop. Otherwise, it would have been an Audi 1-2 and actually would have kept Audi in the manufacturer's um, hunt going into Kailami. Um, basically, from a manufacturer stand standpoint, it's Mercedes-AMG and Porsche that will be fighting it out there. Um, Driver-wise, we have uh, Maxi Buch leading the championship right now solo. After being split up with Maxi Getz over the weekend, Buch holds a lead of three points over his co-driver, Raffaele Marchiello, who he co-drove with in Suzuka but may not necessarily drive with in Kailami, um, speaking to Mercedes AMG um, uh, customer sport director Stefan Wendel, he sort of indicated that they may end up making further driver changes, lineup changes, um, pairings for the final race to, to better its chances for the driver's title. So there's still a lot to play for. Um, we have the, the Porsche trio of Dennis Olsen, um, uh, Matt Campbell, and Dirk Werner. Ten points back. They won Bathurst. They were on the podium here. So um, I think there's definitely going to be some fireworks in, in South Africa in terms of the different possibilities um, you know, in the fight ahead and, and the different possibilities we have uh, in, in terms of the driver's championship. But I think the biggest news is that, uh, as far as we know, Audi is mathematically eliminated from repeating as manufacturers champions and they've been the undefeated in an igtc competition until now yeah really interesting development there certainly for a brand that prides itself in its performance in this championship we've we've talked about that in previous episodes uh talking about the event at suzuka more generally this seems to be really well received it seems to be a big deal um seeing some of the pictures from the driver and car parade uh the, the turnout from the fan perspective seems to be huge what was it like on the ground yeah, it was. It seemed like it was a big step forward from last year. Um, the reported attendance was fifty-one thousand over the three days. Honestly, it felt like more than that. Um, sometimes we see attendance numbers, you know, released from some series that are a little optimistic, and and I think this was uh, underreporting. Honestly, um, I, I felt like there was more than than fifty-one thousand. But there were um, the pit walk and autograph sessions were sold out on both Saturday and Sunday. This was a separate ticket that fans had to buy. Um, in order to get a chance to to see the cars up close and personal and 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 meet the the drivers um the parade on thursday was absolutely crazy i never expected to see that many fans on a thursday afternoon in the middle of a work week um the the cars um, drove from suzuka circuit to the aeon mall which was maybe about a five kilometers away um, on city streets i was told this was actually the first time anything like this has ever happened in japan um super gt for instance never has done an event like this before where the cars are driven on the city streets so the fans are absolutely crazy um that uh, you know uh, super excited to see that um yeah I, I i think overall the event has continued to grow the only thing that's a bit of a, a cautionary tale is the the situation with the number of japanese teams i spoke to stefan reitel and and he you know indicated in a similar tone to last year that they they fulfilled their end of the agreement mind you this is a partnership between sro 
um, GTA, the, the, the promoters of Super GT and Mobility Land, the track owner, um, which is basically Honda. And there was, you know, it's a joint event. There was, um, you know, supposed to be a X amount of Japanese entries. We had a couple of those drop off the entry list late in the going. And um, ultimately, 36 cars, still a good number. Um, but in order to get to the 45, 40 or 45 entries, Stefan really believes it's going to have to come from Japanese teams. He says they're pretty much maxed out in terms of intercontinental entries. Um, there were, I think there were 22 more or less nominated this weekend between the Blancpain GT Asia entries and European fly-ins. So he said, even if there's more manufacturers on the grid next year, there's probably not going to be more than 25 total still in the middle of the summer season for a lot of European teams. So he says, you know, we need to get find ways to encourage the Japanese teams to come in, the GT300 teams from Super GT. Um, one of the big problems there is that Super GT runs on, on confidential tires. It's an open tire formula. And a lot of these teams are a bit scared to go on the Pirellis, which is a, a spec tire. It's a lot different of a tire um, compared to what they're used to. It's, um, you know, I, I would say the Pirelli is very similar to the, the Michelin we see in the, the WeatherTech Championship in GTD, where it's a, a control tire. It's a very, you know, a, a, a very durable, very good tire, but it's so different than, you know, what a confidential tire would be like in GTLM, for instance, in the States. So um, that's what a lot of Super GT teams are used to over in, in Japan. So there's still a bit of a divide there. Um, Pirelli has a four-year contract as exclusive tire um, supplier for this event, which I think is a great thing because it keeps the consistency within our continental GT challenge going um, by having the same tire. But we got to find ways of promoting Japanese teams to, to take part in this race. And Stefan sort of come forward and said, hey, let's get some of them to take part in the Blancpain GT um, World Challenge Asia round in Suzuka earlier in the year so they can get used to the tire, they can get used to the rules, they can get used to the regulations and and sort of have a, a, a better understanding and, and a more competitive showing. So um, that's not to say, you know, that Japanese teams didn't have success. We, we have to look at what good smile racing did again this year. Um, they were running inside the top five with their Mercedes AMG, um, strong showing by Kamui Kobayashi in that car. Um, a couple other, um, Asian teams did very well as well. So, um, you know, there's always room for improvement in, in new events like this. Um, but I, I think this year was, was definitely still a good step forward compared to last year's inaugural event. And along those lines, the question everyone wants to know, was anyone talking about washing machines? <laughs> no, um, although <laughs> I did spot, crazy enough, I did spot multiple washing machines in the paddock, <laughs> and they were all from Japanese teams. I didn't get to ask the question, though, why, but they were there. There were about three or four of them lined up in the, in the back of the paddock. I, 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 it must be some cultural thing where teams use them to wash their clothes or wash their race suits. I, I don't know or use anything else with them, but the stories that we heard from the commentary team last year, I guess, were true. I just wasn't as observant with the washing machines <laughs> last year, so we have to thank Dave for that. Um, Thankfully, we had a, 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 an improved commentary team this year led by Sam Collins. But, um, you know, still, uh, it, was a, it was quite entertaining. Um, 
uh, all, all around. Yeah, glad to glad to hear there was at least a repeat appearance of something washing machine related. That's uh, maybe the calling card of this event. Uh, but but in all seriousness, it is has really become a, a great great event, and uh, definitely some plans to continue to improve it. But off to a really solid start. So full coverage from John's weekend at Suzuka can be found at SportsCar365.com. Meanwhile, in the states, we had a GT only race at uh, VIR for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Another 1-2 for Porsche in the GTLM class, and as it turns out, because it's a GT-only race overall as well. How about the season that Porsche is having in GTLM? This is a class that is known worldwide for its parity and close competition, and yet Porsche has been dominant so far in the WeatherTech Championship. It's really been incredible, Ryan, and and I I don't know what else to to say. You know, um, we've saw some BOP adjustments entering the weekend in GTLM. Um, you know, uh, no change to the Porsche again, and I guess I think that leaves a lot of people's heads scratching a little bit. But uh, still, from what I saw from afar, it looked like a dominant run by these guys. Um, believe it or not, I think it is their first one-two in a couple of years. Um, they haven't achieved that feat since Lime Rock, I think, in 2017, when the, they, they gave the car's first win with the, 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 the mid-engine, the first-generation mid-engine car, which is still being run in the IMSA series for the rest of this year. Um, but uh, championship-wise, they basically have it virtually locked up in the manufacturer's championship, I believe, that they only have to start the next two races in order to be crowned manufacturer's champions. Um, driver's championship is a little different with Nick Tandian um, and Patrick Pillay, um closing the gap a little bit on Earl Bamber and Lawrence Vanthor with their win with Nick and Patrick's win on su- on Sunday. But um, it's been a really impressive season for the, the core autosport run squad, six wins out of nine run races and still two to go um, at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca and Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. We have to get used to these sponsorship yes, names on racetracks. I've, I've like accidentally mixed them up a little bit once. <laughs> and um, anyway, yeah, uh, Really, really strong stuff for these guys, and um, not much more to say, I think. It's kind of left the, the rest of the field maybe a bit demoralized. I thought there was an interesting, some interesting quotes from Antonio Garcia in a story that uh, that Dan had on the website, basically saying, you know, the Corvettes didn't have anything for the Porsches, and, and that's been a common refrain throughout the year from their competitors. It might not be Corvette every time, but whoever the next closest is, saying basically this is all we had we had nothing for these porsches which uh will lead to the bop discussion frankly especially early in the season i think some of the porsche wins were in situations where maybe they didn't have the best car but took advantage of situations as they were presented but as the season has gone along it does seem like the porsches have a a significant leg up and it's left the rest of the class trying to play catch up and trying to understand why they're, they're in this situation yeah and, and i it's difficult to say you know i i always speak very highly of imsa's bop system and generally it's been very strong but this year's been a little different um and when we we had a story up on sports car 365 about it i think we'll get to it in the news section about uh, what's sort of being tabbed as bop manipulation and not saying this is what porsche is doing because porsche is out there winning every race so it's hard to manipulate the BOP that way. But um, 
it's a new process this year to revise system where IMS is taking the rolling average of the last two races um, and, and you're only able to make a X amount of changes um, through more through a, a data-based system, almost like an auto BOP or what we see in the WEC GTE Pro class. So the system is not perfect. I think that there's definitely going to have to be some revisions for next year. Um, we've seen some of the biggest controversy, I think, with it in the DPI class right now. Um, but in GTLM, it's having some effects as well, I think, uh, to some degree as well. Clearly so. How about in GT Daytona, John? We finally get a breakthrough win for Ben Keating and Jerome Bleekamolen, who have uh, have been waiting for this for quite some time. First win of the season for them. And uh, to, to do so, Bleekamolen really had a, a strong final stint in that car. Yeah, a long time coming for these guys. Um, great to see the Mercedes-AMG back in victory lane. They've had some horrible luck lately, um, not only with BOP, but also some uh, mechanical issues or or incidents on track um, of not of their own doing. So uh, to have Ben and Jerome back in victory lane, especially actually dating back to Lama, you know, thinking of all the heartbreak mm. that Ben and those guys went th- went through with the Ford GT, um, then then go to Watkins Glen, and I think they had a another big uh, an accident there i think and that took him out early in the race then um, there was a mechanical issue a couple of races later so finally um to see that to see the riley motorsports crew celebrate i think that's um, really well deserved um uh, for for those guys even though they're pretty much out of the driver's championship for the full season championship um, um because of the unlucky breaks in the summer how about the points implications coming out of the weekend? Uh, it was another strong performance for Meyer Shank Racing, Mario Farnbacher, Trent Hidman, who have been the, the dominant duo so far this season. Even if, if they can't win, it seems like they're second more often than not. And uh, that, that was the case again. Yeah, I think they leave VIR with a 37-point lead. So that basically means they can lock up the championship at, at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca by just sort of, you know, getting another podium finish. Um, so I think it puts them in a really strong position. Um, no surprise there. They've been one of the most consistent teams, I, I think, you know, all year round in, in, in GTD. Um, so really good stuff there. But what the interesting thing is, is in the WeatherTech Sprint Cup, there's only one race remaining there. That's at Laguna Seca. And Zach Robichon holds a one-point lead over Mario and Trent there. So um, if the Meyer-Shank guys are even thinking about the Sprint Cup, they maybe have to shift their focus a little bit to be a little bit more racy um, at Laguna Seca. I don't know. Um, we still don't know who Robichon will team up with there for that race. We believe it'll be um, Scott Hargrove again, but with the Porsche Young Professionals now back, I think they both should be available that weekend. Um, they weren't, they were both uh, Dennis Olson and Matt Campbell were at uh, Suzuka this past weekend. That's why they weren't um, able to be part of FAF Motorsports lineup at VIR. So who knows what happens there? Um, I'm personally just interested in the sprint cup. It's the first time, um, you know, this championship has existed, um, it's seven rounds in the, in the middle of the full weather tech championship season. So, um, definitely some things to sort of keep an eye on as we head over to Laguna Seca in a few weeks time in a few weeks time. All of our IMSA coverage can be found at sportscar365.com, extending, of course, beyond the WeatherTech Championship. A lot of uh, action over the weekend with Michelin Pilot Challenge, among other championships 
that we're racing at VIR. So check out the website for more on that. For now, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we will speak about the news of the week in sports car racing next on Double Stint. Hi, I'm Guy Smith. You're listening to Sports Car 365 Double Stint Podcast. Back now on Double Stint. Time to talk about the news of the week. And John, you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about balance of performance in IMSA. There was a new directive handed down from the brass at IMSA telling teams effectively no more coded messages. Um, There is some concern that teams were using different messages that might not mean exactly what they sound like or they might have been nonsensical if you were listening in on a scanner to effectively uh, manipulate the BOP system so where did this come from how can this be enforced what ultimately is the end result in your eyes yeah this all sort of came about a few weeks ago when there was a bulletin issued at first it said all messages over the radio has to have to be done in english and i think that caused a huge stir in the paddock especially with some foreign drivers and 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 whatnot and maybe even foreign teams like um you know land motorsport for instance going over for petit lama um nonetheless that was corrected or adjusted in the build-up to vir but that was redefined in the build-up to the vir weekend but actually sort of explained even more in a follow-up bulletin um, basically saying it's a breach of the rules to use codes, ciphers, um, disguised, misleading, or otherwise secretive language to, in an attempt to influence the BOP process by manipulating the performance through driver management or by any other means uh, possible. So um, IMSA has really come out and said, hey, there's stuff going on that we may not be aware of, but we're trying to crack down on it by um, not letting these radio messages occur. Now, this is a huge thing to sort of police. I don't know how IMSA is really doing it. It'll be interesting to actually speak to some of the folks at IMSA following the VIR weekend to see what went into this. Are, were they recording all, all of their all the radio transmissions? Are they going back on tapes to r- listen to everything? Um, you know, it, it's a pretty big task to sort of put this rule out there. I understand the purpose. I understand the reason. Um, you know, there were some allegations of BOP manipulation following the, the, the road America weekend. We had a story, um, from the Cadillac group, um, following that race, uh, Pippo Durrani had a quote that he, he gave us, um, sort of alleging that accurate team Penske was calling out codes on their radio. And I, you know, I know Ryan, you cover IndyCar quite closely. And I think, you know, coded messages are kind of the norm over there and, and even in other series. So it's kind of interesting to see IMSA take the stance and um, not sure how successful this, this could, they could be in trying to enforce something like this. I'm in total agreement. And you're right. You know, listening on on the scanner as I do during the IndyCar races that I cover, you hear all kinds of things that make absolutely no sense. And that's just par for the course. And it makes sense. The teams want to protect the information that they're transmitting. They know their competitors are listening in. It's not being done to manipulate a balance of performance though, which I suppose mm. would be the bigger difference there. That said, I'm in agreement 
I have no idea how you're going to be able to police this, because even if something sounds plain and clear in terms of the message it's conveying on the radio, there's no guarantee that something like that doesn't have a secondary or tertiary meaning that the driver in the car understands. So uh, I struggle to, to understand how this one's going to po- be policed. I'm excited to, to, to get some answers to these questions when we have a chance to do so. I kind of thought, too, that IMSA's access to all the data in the car would pretty well cover all of this stuff. I, I mean, they, they can basically look and see at what kind of driver inputs are happening, throttle and brake traces, and, and all kinds of other things that I can't even begin to, to comprehend. And, and I know that their staff looks closely at that for any kind of BOP manipulation. So I, I just I struggle to see where this is going to make a big difference. Very well could be wrong, but uh, from a layman's perspective, at least, those are the concerns that I have. Yeah, and also from a data perspective, that's another element that IMSA announced prior to VIR is that they're restricting the amount of data teams actually receive over the course of the weekend in terms of speed traps, um, sector times, et cetera. Um, all of this data used to be readily available on um, Alchemil database, results.imsa.com, and now it's been tightened up and will only be released following each weekend. So, there was some maybe some belief that teams were monitoring all of this data and looking at the competition and trying to control their performance that way too. So um, it's definitely interesting times. Um, I, I, I give credit to IMSA for at least trying to crack down on this. Um, it's clear that you know this is something that's been going on in at least two of the classes this year in DPI and GTLM. So you know. It's harder to police in GTD. It's harder to, uh, not police, but it's it's harder to manipulate the BOP in GTD when you have multiple um, teams driving, you know, with the same manufacturer. But um, DPI-wise, you know, it, it very well could be done with, with, with some of the, the teams and, and GTLM. It's all factory there. So, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see what kind of uh, consequences come out of any of this, you know, IMSA's made it clear that these are breaches of the rules, but what will be the penalty if a team is caught manipulating the BOP? You know, I think that's the big question right now. Sure. It's going to be a fascinating story to watch as it continues to develop. Another story that we spoke about on the show last week and got some confirmation on in the subsequent days, uh, Core Autosport will indeed be ending their DPI program following this year. John Bennett has indeed announced his retirement, as we uh, had reported was was likely to, to happen It's a big hit, I have to say, to some degree, because this is one of the leading lights as far as privateer programs that have been running prototypes uh, the last couple of seasons and then going back to some of their GT racing before that. And you lose a manufacturer in Nissan unless somebody else picks up that that customer uh, deal that, that they took over after ESM went away. What do you make of it, John? Because John Bennett's been a staple in the paddock. Core has been as well. They'll continue to be with their GTLM program. But as far as a little bit of the diversity in DPI and one of the solid teams, a real underdog story a year ago, seeing that disappear is quite sad from where I'm sitting. Yeah, it's really disappointing, Um, you know, especially considering, like you said, John's been there in the paddock for such a long time. The team was founded in 2010. 
all the the prototype challenge championships that that they had won and then dipping their toes with Porsche before getting the factory Porsche relationship in GTLM, then branching out and doing a GTD Porsche before uh, moving into LMP2 um, last year. And um, by God, they almost won the championship. And, and, and now to see that team close its doors on that end of the team, you know, to be clear, the core organization is still going to be very active in IMSA with the operation of the factory Porsche squad. But it's still really a heartbreaking situation. And I think, you know, for, for John Bennett, it sort of came down to, you know, him not being able to fight for wins anymore. And the the DPI class sort of being more catered towards factory teams or factory supported teams. Um, Core took on this Nissan DPI program at the beginning of the year, purchasing all of the assets from from ESM. And um, I, I think they were even surprised a little bit of where that package was. Um, ESM enjoyed a lot of success with it, but there were still a lot of reliability issues with it. Um, we saw a lot of gearbox failures over the course of the year. Um, there is no support from Nissan from a financial standpoint. Um, there's uh, some customer support, you could say, on the engine, but it, it's a paid you know, customer program. And uh, I, I think that, you know, doing another season of it wasn't really going to show anything different than what we've seen this year. And from IMSA's standpoint, it's a it's a huge hit in terms of the manufacturers. You know, we're just looking like we'll only have three next year, um, you know, unless some, like you said, unless somebody picks up these these cars. I'm, I'm sure that Core will be putting them up for sale. But, you know, looking at the level of investment needed to sort of run something like this, I think Core was the best prepared team to do it. Um, other than what ESM had done. So um, it's a real shame. Um, you know, I, I I have to wonder if if this situation was maybe influenced by the way the DPI regulations are also going, where, you know, you look at high, the implementation of hybrids for 2022, um, certainly increased costs, you know, by that time, um, more manufacturers joining I think it's sort of it could be a sign to show that privateers may not be able to really compete in, in the top class, which for me is going to be a real shame. Speaking of privateers, the the legacy of John Bennett. Admittedly, there's still a couple of chapters left to be written with a few races left this season. But thinking about his time in the sport, he's been such a presence for so long. When you think back on his accomplishments, what the team has done, what what the level of um, of success that he's been able to demonstrate a privateer is capable of. Uh, what, what what comes to mind for you? Well, I, I think of all of his success in LMPC with him and Colin Brown, you had a lot of top-level teams and drivers competing, and, and Core was at the benchmark year in and year out. I think they won four LMPC titles there. Um, you know, John didn't win all of them because of the way the points were structured, but um, it was it was really impressive to see how this team sort of came out of nowhere and just really put their head down. They had goals in mind. Um, one of them was to land a factory contract and they, they did with Porsche. So, um, I think every step of the way has been a real measured level of success by the, the core team and the legacy obviously still lives on the team, you know, is now focused on their factory program, but, it's a shame to see that privateer side of it go away because I think that's where a lot of the headlines were, were made in, in, in over the years. And especially for John as a gentleman driver, I think he, he had come a, a long way for where he was back in two, you know, the late 
2000s when he started off as a driver, um, I think initially racing in IMSA lights, uh, IMSA prototype challenge, and then moving up the ranks to with the prototype challenge race car. And, um, you know, sort of sad to see him retire because I know he had a, a long lived goal of competing at the 24 hours of Le Mans. And, you know, we've always been asking, is this the year? Is this the year? And, and ultimately they elected not to. And, um, it sounds like it probably won't, well, who knows? You never say never. He, he didn't completely rule out, you know, driving again, but, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a shame to sort of see this all develop because honestly, I think that if LMP2 had stayed together with DPI as a single class, if we had the same rules as last year, I don't think we'd be having this discussion right now. And I think core would have remained with an LMP two car. They might've been still fighting in, inside the championship right now for a, for a title, but the way the IMSA regulations evolved and not saying it was a bad thing to split LMP two, but you know, the pressure from the manufacturers and, and, and whatnot, uh, has sort of made the the landscape a lot different than what it was last year. And it may have cost uh, us uh, a real top level prototype entrant. Yep. I think that's very well said. Well, one more topic for the show here for discussion in the news segment. We know that the Ford GT program concludes after Motul Petit Le Mans this year. We also know that Chip Ganassi Racing would like to stay involved in sports car racing. They'd like to, to keep their employees involved as well uh, with an eye on, on further involvement down the road, even just to, to try and bridge the, the gap here between programs potentially. So there's been some rumors floating around about various avenues that they could use to stay involved. What do we know at this time? Yeah, the, so the latest rumor, which was quite intriguing, is that there were some talks between them and Ferrari about a potential factory-backed GTLM program for next year. Um, We did some digging over the weekend, and from what I can say, it looks unlikely. Um, It looks like it would be something that Ferrari would have had to come up with financially and that they're not in a position to do so. But I find it interesting that at least they had, I had confirmation that they had a discussion, you know, that there was discussions between Chip Ganassi racing and Ferrari. Um, that shows that Ganassi's out there talking to all these manufacturers, everybody out there, presumably to try to keep his crew afloat because, um, there's definitely no Ford factory program until 2022 at the earliest, should they commit to a DPI 2022 program. And, um, you know, they have a real, you know, talented crew, um, some great drivers whose contracts are up at the end of the year as well. And I, I know it's been an objective of theirs to remain in sports car racing. Um, the priority sort of being DPI, but I honestly don't see many options for next year. Um, there was, I know, some talk of potentially Mazda, but I think we're going to be seeing a similar program next year, um, likely with Yoast again, Um and Multimatic and how it's sort of run right now. So, um, yeah, it's almost to a sense of desperation now for, for Ganassi trying to find some kind of program to keep things going. And, um, the number I've keep hearing is $10 million. That's what it basically costs to run a two car GTLM program in IMSA. So, um, trying to find that money in terms of commercial sponsorship is probably very difficult and I think it, you sort of have to rely on the manufacturer. And um, right now, it, I don't think it's looking particularly good. 
All right, interesting stuff. Well, plenty of news up on sportscar365.com for you to check out as well, plus more on some of the topics that we've discussed here. For now, let's take a quick break. We've got Kelvin Vanderlinda joining us next, talking about a big race weekend and a race win at Suzuka. That is next on Double Stint. Hi, I'm Stephen Simpson, and you're listening to Sportscar 365's Double Stint Podcast. Welcome back to Double Stint. We're here with Kelvin Vanderlinde, winner of the Suzuka 10 Hours with Audi Sport Team WRT. Just after, just took the checkered flag um, minutes after the race. What's, what's your feelings right now taking this big win for Audi, sort of keeping title hopes for your co-driver alive as well? Uh, it's special. You know, uh, we had a meeting this morning, as we always do before a big race with Chris, um, our boss, and uh, he said to us, you guys can do history today. Um, and that was the goal. You know, Audi never won on Japanese soil, so uh, the goal was clear today. And um, I think we executed extremely well. We had a lineup which, uh, yeah, we just could keep the momentum. You know, that's nice sometimes when you have co-drivers which can just keep that momentum going. You know, some very often or, you know, sometimes in races you have that that momentum not going your way. But today it really was flowing. You know, every driver was doing their bit. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the result in the end. You said after uh, qualifying that you were going to give it all your all. What, what's, did you have that kind of confidence going into this race that you knew that you had something special with, with the car? Yeah, well, I mean, we were, we were always in the top five, top three, even in practice, so we knew we had a good package. Um, but last year, we, we obviously had a bit of concerns with the tire deck. So coming at this year, that was one of our main focus points, you know, trying to get the car to last over the long run in comparison to Mercedes and maybe even Porsche, I would say, with their new car. So, yeah, I think we executed that well. We, we did a setup which is, um, I would say, far out the window where we normally run in a, in a typical sprint race or even at Nürburgring or Spa, I would say, um, you know, and uh, that seemed to work. So, yeah, that's great to our engineer, you know, making the car work on a, on a very soft platform, yeah, and, uh, yeah, it paid off. Did the lack of dry running time sort of make you make that split decision for strat- for that different setup or what? Um, I think what was nice is that we've been here last year, so we were all pretty much on the pace straight away, even though it was wet in, in practice, so we could get cracking straight away as soon as it was dry. Um, so we could straight away do our setup points that we wanted to do, and that was basically on our test points, you know, um, in FP3, and we, we take that one off straight away, and it worked out luckily. So, you know, it's not always black and white when, you, when you're trying to do something in practice, because the tire mileage uh, and the, the, the tire drops extremely highly, but luckily we could we can make the distinction on the setup change, and it worked out. We're here with Calvin Vanderlinde, who, along with Fred Verviche and uh, and uh, Dries Vantor, claimed victory in the Suzuka 10 Hours. Um, you, you sort of mentioned this, you know, for Audi. This is a huge win for them. You said first win, first win for uh, this car in an endurance race in Japan. Does, does that really give, make you know make it really give you a lot of pride to sort of have you've done this yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, our GD3 program has, has always been a very successful part of Audi Sport. Um, but, you know, looking back uh, to the day, you know, when, when the LMP cars came, the sports cars came, um, you know, nobody ever was able to succeed. And, you know, so we play a big part in that in that um, history as a, as a brand in a whole, you know, um, even though the GD3 program is a smaller part compared to the works programs back in the day. So I think uh, to be part of that history is very, very proud moment um, for all three of us. 
and your, and your co-driver Fred, he's still within the championship reach, I believe now too. So that sort of is was an important day for for you guys as well there. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know we didn't we got off to a bit of a slow start, but uh, the last two races in Spa and obviously here yeah, proved that we we're coming back stronger. Uh, we understanding how our package is working with the new Evo kit. We've uh, really unlocked the the potential that we knew we had inside the car. So uh, from that point of view, I think we were all very positive going to my home race in Kailami. Uh, something I'm very, very excited for. Um, and yeah, I think the, the driver lineup also clicked this weekend, so it would be great if we could even see that for Kailami. Yeah, and that was, that was my next question. What what are your expectations there? I know there's going to be a lot of spot, a big, huge spotlight on you and others, um, your fellow countrymen racing there, Jordan Pepper as well. Um, really looking? Are you really looking forward to, to the nine hour? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the highlight of the year for me, really. Um, after Nürburgring and Spa, of course, it's right up there. Um, getting to race on home soil is something I didn't really um, imagine a few years back it came kind of came out of the blue so that's very cool um and then yeah trying to get the the manufacturer's title for audi get them back in the hunt i think we p3 now or in the hunt for p3 so yeah that's that's positive news and uh yeah the goal is pretty clear for kailami i want to win in my in my home race and uh if that helps audi and obviously fred in the in the driver's championship then it's even better well thanks for the time congratulations and we'll we'll see you in a, a few we'll see you in kailami hopefully thank you very much Hi, I'm Billy Johnson, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint now, thanks to Kelvin for some time post-race. And John, back with me to wrap up the show here. We'll go first to a listener question that came in on Twitter using the hashtag AskDoubleStint. It's from at Dr. Joey Bananas. Who wants to know what's a team's return on investment for entering the Michelin Encore? Ten thousand dollars and three sets of tires doesn't seem like much for a race that's not part of a season, has no TV deal, and has a small attendance. Uh, he says he was there in 2018. Don't they go through three plus sets of tires at the race? He says. What can you tell us? The Encore was initially established last year for teams to get used to the Michelin tires and now everybody's been on them for a whole year so that sort of mission accomplished I think that was sort of the return on investment last year to get teams up to speed with with their with the new tire partner this year is a little different you're right I think the the prize money does not reward you know the amount of money put in to run the the a car there but or the or the, the free tires but I think at the same time, it's also a good opportunity to maybe potentially evaluate drivers, um, try some new setups to, to get a jump start on the year, even if it's, you know, costing some money. I think a lot of teams could use this in lieu of a test, and uh, the costs would be pretty similar between, you know, renting out a track for two days or being part of this race event. So um, I think there's some attractiveness there. Um, we'll still have to wait and I still personally, I still have to wait and see what we're going to have in terms of an entry. Um, there's not been a lot of talk in the paddock about teams signing up. I think we had a little less than 20 cars last year. So, um, you know, IMSA is again, encouraging GT3 teams to join. We had the issue last year with a bunch of Evos wanting to take part in the race, but those weren't homologated yet. Um, we don't really have that problem this year other than the Mercedes, but I haven't heard anything about Mercedes wanting to specifically do this race. So I think we're probably in the clear there, but, um, for sure, it'll be interesting to see who, who commits, what teams run, but 
Um, I think IMSA sort of wants to keep this event there for those opportunities to sort of bridge the gap between the seasons and to maybe help steer teams into running a race weekend instead of private testing that could end up being the same, you know, money to, 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 to do. Interesting question. Thank you very much for writing in. And if you have a question for us on our next show, you can be like at Dr. Joey Bananas and use the hashtag AskDoubleStint or leave a comment in the comments section with the post at SportsCar365.com. Finally, John, let's look ahead to the weekend. We've got uh, the WEC and ELMS both in action at Silverstone. SRO America roars back into action at Watkins Glen. Let's start with Silverstone. What do you expect there? Yeah, it's it's hard to believe that WEC a new WEC season is upon us just a few months after Lama, but this is the new uh, way the calendar works. Um, we got an entry for the, the four hours of Silverstone as it is this year. Ironically, the same distance, at, same race length as the ELMS race over the same weekend and the same name. So it's a little confusing there up front, but um, nonetheless, um, Toyota, Janetta, and Rebellion are the three LMP1 ma- teams slash manufacturers that are set to do battle for for overall honors. We got LMP2. Um, we had the late addition with the second um, Rebellion for the race, and including uh, Pipo Durrani as part of the lineup, so that's exciting. A late driver change there with LMP2 with um, Antonio Felix da Costa joining the Joda Sport operation instead of Pastor Maldonado. Um, sounds like there were some money issues from Aldonado that's um, left left him out of the cockpit of that entry um, alongside Anthony Davidson and uh, Roberto Gonzalez. Um, got six GTE Pro cars following following the withdrawals of Ford and BMW in the WEC, but a boosted GTE AM grid, and that includes a second Project One Porsche for Ben Keating, Jerome Blicamolin, and Felipe Fraga, which is certainly a, an entry to watch for. Um, those guys just completed a test, I think, prior to the VIR weekend um, with that Porsche over in Europe, so they have some mileage under their belt there. So. Um, Definitely looking forward to following the, the, all the action from uh, from Silverstone. We have uh, uh, Jake Kilshawn, Dan Lloyd will be on site for us, giving, providing all the coverage there. And um, in terms of SRO America, yeah, another bumper weekend for them. I think all series returned to act, action um, this weekend at Watkins Glen after uh, their last race at Portland, which was just GT4 Sprint X and GT4 West. Um in, in, as well as the touring cars, but uh, GT3 is back in action. Blancpain GT World Challenge America, that is, and um, the GT4 Sprint as well. Um, lots of uh, storylines there. Some driver changes. Be sure to check out Sports Car 365 for the latest entry lists on, on all of that as well. And also the debut of tire warmers in the series, which we talked about on the show last week. So plenty of things to look at and look forward to at uh, Watkins Glen. Hope. That you enjoy the weekend of sports car racing, whatever you choose to tune into. It's a busy one, and uh, you got plenty of options, which is always a good thing. Looking forward to hitting the ground at Watkins Glen and uh, providing a little bit of coverage from there. But that's going to be a wrap for us on the show this week here on Double Stint. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes if you have a little bit of time. But for now, so long. Talk to you next week with our next edition of the Double Stint Podcast.